Live from Dearbur, this is the Lock Tomb Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. We're rereading Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Today we're starting Act 5 with chapters 40 through 46. Just a note before we start, we talk a bit about suicide in this episode in minutes 44 and 45 if you'd like to skip that bit. Okay, we start with an alternate universe marathon. Then we dive right into the climax of the book when Harrow realizes what she's done to her brain. And finally, we get to experience the return of our favorite character, back from the dead and gayer than ever. Gayer than ever. And Amy, I got a question for you. Hit me. What does Harrow make her pancakes on? It's a griddle. (laughs) Damn it, you actually got this one. (laughs) First time ever. (laughs) I mean, that one's a pretty obvious, but, you know. <laughs> I can't I like believe it. I haven't made a griddle joke in all of these episodes, so I had to squeeze it in. I know. I feel like probably for the rest of this podcast, you should just make griddle jokes. <laughs> Ooh, challenge accepted. <laughs> How many jokes can one make out of a griddle? Two we'll to find three. Out. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 40. So we start... Act 5 with chapter 40, and the first time you read the beginning of Act 5, it will not make any sense, like most of this book, but what's even weirder about these next three chapters is that all three of them are a different alternate universe that is like a meta joke about fan fiction tropes. It's very good, but chapter 40 (laughs) has a fractured ninth house skull decal, (laughs) And then for the timeline, it just has a bunch of question marks, just question mark, question mark, question mark, three times. And then it's in the third person. This one is the Hera Nova alternate universe. And I just have to say, so Amy loves fan fiction, but I (laughs) never really got into it. I tried and I do read it on occasion if I'm really missing some characters, But I feel like these chapters are written for Tamsin Muir's fellow fan fiction fans. Absolutely. Because if you aren't familiar with fan fiction, you're not even going to understand why these chapters are even in this book. These chapters don't have to be in this book for the book to be complete. They're kind of bonus chapters is how I see them. They are, but I also think that what they give us is this feeling of Harrow desperately trying to cover up these holes in her memory over and over again. The same confusion that Harrow is feeling, we're feeling reading these. And then it really sets us up for that sucker punch in chapter, what is it, 43? Yeah. When Harrow finally wakes up and realizes what she's done to herself. After a whole book of not really understanding what's going on. Right. No, they definitely serve a functional purpose. But I will say my first read through when these chapters came up, I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) I was like, I just want to know what's happening. Now there's three other random stories in here. What's going on? Yeah, I have to say when I first read this book, I was afraid that each of these stories would become a fully developed (laughs) separate plot line. (laughs) It's like there's so much to keep track of. So each one of these chapters is playing on a different fan fiction trope, some of them more obvious than others. But I would say that this first one is the reverse role Mm. fan fiction trope. So basically, 
Harrow is in Gideon's role, and we don't actually see Gideon, but Gideon is in Harrow's role. And the chapter opens with Harrow Nova challenging Ortis to a duel. Somehow Harrow is the cavalier secondary or something in the ninth house. She's not a necromancer. And Ortis is trying to convince her that there's no way that her parents would ever let her be the cavalier primary. And it seems like someone has supplanted Harrow. There's been a, another necromancer or a, a different person who's been the necromancer in this alternate universe. And it's implied, and I think we can infer that it's Gideon. Right. And in fact, Gideon is in every single one of these. Yeah, it's so funny because I think even on my first read, I knew Gideon to be in the opposite role. I knew Gideon as the necromancer in this story for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is interesting because while their roles are flipped, what I find kind of funny or weird about this chapter is that Crux is very present in it. And Crux is treating Harrow well here. And if the roles were really reversed, I would have assumed that Crux would be treating Harrow like shit because Crux treated Gideon like shit. Yeah, and this almost makes me feel like there's a chance that in the real world, in the meantime, as this book has happened, that Crux has died and that this is actually Crux. Right. As opposed to a shadow version of him. But who knows? Right. I mean, Harrow was keeping Crux alive by a thread. So right. I bet Crux died after Harrow left for sure. Mm -hmm. Either naturally or violently in some sort of weird takeover <laughs> heist of the ninth house that we haven't learned oh about yet. But anyway, there is a bit where Ordis is arguing with Harrow and saying, you know, you don't even want to carry the sword for this mysterious necromancer heir of the ninth house and harrow's like no i i hate her she's the worst and then ordis says but you know she's quite and harrow says no and then he says and they say she's petitioning for and i think that what he's about to say is that gideon is really into harrow and wants to marry her <laughs> i would put money up I would paint my body a skeleton five times over. Yeah. I mean, you know, anything is possible in these alternate universe stories. Mm -hmm. But who's to say? I'm not convinced. I don't have an alternative theory, though. So I guess by default, we'll just have to go with yours. Yes. So Crux comes, yells at them for making noise in the chapel. He's mostly mad at Ordis. And then he makes Ordis leave, and he says, Harrow, there are pilgrims in the chapel. You should go apologize to them. And Harrow walks up to the front of the chapel where there are these two pilgrims, and she realizes that the man is the woman's husband, and then she realizes that there's no way that she could have known that. And then it says that Abigail says this isn't how it happens. So... Somehow she's pulled Abigail and Magnus into this alternate universe. And then we get to chapter 41. These are short <laughs> little chapters. So <laughs> this one starts with a fractured fifth house skull. The timeline is question mark, question mark, question mark before question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> it continues in the third person. This is a fan fiction trope where all of the characters are at a formal ball. Love it. I feel like I haven't actually read a lot of these, but I 
do know of at least one, and I feel like it's probably a bigger trope if I've if I've read one, and I don't actually. Contrary to your um, apparent belief, <laughs> I am not like hugely into fan fiction. I just read it sometimes and like sometimes a lot. <laughs> I I like this chapter one because it is short. <laughs> oh my god! And as a first time reader, I have no patience for this. As a second, third, and fourth time reader, I read them slowly and they're fun. But that's because I'm not anxious about what's going to happen at the end. Like I already know. But right. this is fun. I mean, for a few different reasons, but we can assume that Harrow's never been to a ball before, and no. yet her subconscious has created a ball that sounds like a pretty rad party. So somewhere just buried deep down is a Harrow who knows how to have a good time. Yeah. Oh, that's a great takeaway from this chapter, Mel. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't seem to be having a good time in the ball, but... The fact that she created this is pretty impressive. Right. So just to go a little bit more into it, Harrow, Iglamine, and Ordis are at a ball for Her Divine Highness, <laughs> who is never named, but I think also is quite obviously Gideon. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really interesting about this is apparently all these people are at this ball to vie for the hand of Her Divine Highness. So it, it, God's daughter. That's what it makes it sound like. And mm. I think it's interesting because I remember reading in an interview that Tamsin Muir says that in Harrow the Ninth, Harrow is grappling with Gideon's divinity, which makes it sound like Harrow suspects or knows of Gideon's divinity. I don't actually know if that's true, but this alternate universe does seem to imply that Harrow has some inkling of Gideon's divinity, or at least... I'm not sure. Or she just has put Gideon up on a pedestal now, the pedestal where Gideon belongs. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, Gideon didn't die in the crash flu. And so it's possible that Harrow does suspect something. Right. And I also think that when Harrow told Gideon that no one was coming for her and no one loved her and she didn't have important parents, that seems so defensive that it almost feels like there might have been a part of Harrow that just was afraid that Gideon had important parents because it might mean that they would take Gideon away from her. Mm. And Gideon was the only person, even though she was her nemesis, Gideon was the only person who, you know, she had some sort of relationship right. with. Oh, another thing. I'm also wondering if Iglamine is dead or if this is an, a shadow of Iglamine. Right. Oh, I hope not. I like Iglamine. I mean, she can serve a purpose in the river also, but I hope she's not dead. <laughs> yeah, certainly. But they're interrupted when a woman and a man walk up and the man is eating a canapé. And one of my favorite lines in this chapter is Magnus, the man, says, have you ever eaten party food, Harrow? Because if not, this is incredibly accurate. No taste, but incredibly salty. <laughs> That's completely true. That's how Harrow cooks. I feel like that's three quarters of weddings. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, wedding food. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, at the very end of this, once again, Abigail says, this isn't how it happens. And we head on over to chapter 42. <laughs> and you think these are over. And then you're hit with a third. 
I know. <laughs> the third one is a little bit more developed. It's also the most stereotypical fan fiction of all time, <laughs> the coffee shop AU, where all of the characters meet in a coffee shop and often have a relationship or flirt or whatever. <laughs> this is such a trope. But in this weird coffee shop AU, Harrow is a cohort chaplain, and she runs into the fourth house. So Isaac and Jean-Marie, who are also officers in the cohort, and Jean-Marie and Isaac try and convince Harrow to be buds with them because Isaac and Harrow are both house heirs. And Jean-Marie is just going off, as always, about all sorts of things. And she starts to talk about the coffee. And she says the coffee is a little bit weird. It has all these extra acids and stuff in it. And she asks Isaac what it's called. And he says bioadaptive reuptake inhibitors, I think it is. So berry. And then they say, <laughs> yeah, and there's a new berry star in the cafeteria that we should go visit, which is the dumbest joke I've ever heard, but so funny also. Oh my God, I did not get that. Barista. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my God. I That's like- <laughs> I've read this like four or five times. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. It, I will say that there's one interesting thing that I thought of here. The fourth house twins have an insignia that shows that they've seen action. And I wonder if this is Harrow subconsciously acknowledging their deaths, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they do go to the cafeteria against Harrow's better judgment, and they get in line for a coffee. <laughs> and this berry star is <laughs> a really hot babe, basically. Harrow is looking at this berry star. There's a lot of like crackling sexual tension here. Uh, the berry star has... <laughs> Red hair, the arms beneath the rolled up sleeves betrayed lean, taut muscle, a little dewy with sweat and steam from the mess. Come on, Mel. Yeah, you know, I I have nothing to say against, this is very clear that Harrow's tapping in to some attraction that she has for Gideon. I mean, yes. here's the thing. Who wouldn't be attracted to Gideon, okay? Again, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that there's not some level of attraction. I just, I don't uh -huh. know. But okay, I can't deny this. This is here. It is obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but right as Harrow looks up and is about to, the book says, is about to say the eyes beneath that mop of red hair were dot, dot, dot. It's about to say gold or whatever. Abigail shows up and says, absolutely not. Damn it, Abigail. <laughs> Yeah, I would have really liked to see that one play this out. This is really the one moment where I don't love Abigail. I'm like, can can you just let us see what happens here? What would have happened? I know what you think would have happened. Yeah, and I will say that there is a ton of fan fiction out there that continues all three of these alternate universes, and they oh. are very good. Oh. Mm -hmm. Well, I will be seeking out the continuation of this one. So that's the end of the AU Marathon, and we move on to chapter 43. Chapter 43 is a heartbreaking chapter to read. Ugh. We have a fractured ninth house skull wearing Gideon's glasses. It's one night before the emperor's murder. It's in the third person. We're in the river bubble, which 
I'm pretty sure that any of the River Bubble chapters, we actually don't have a time stamp on it when it compares to the Emperor's murder. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first River Bubble that actually has that, which means right. that these two consciousnesses of Harrow are colliding here. Right. But basically, in this chapter, Harrow wakes up in the River Bubble having remembered Gideon, and it is... It's hard. It's a hard read. Yeah, the descriptions of grief in this chapter and despair and of loss are really heart-wrenching and beautifully written. Yeah. There's part of, I mean, a big part of me that when I read this chapter, I was like, fucking finally, where Harrow is actively grieving for Gideon head on. Mm-hmm. And the chapter starts, there's a little bit of noise as Harrow's waking up. Some other people are clearly there. But the first thing that comes out of Harrow's mouth is, if I forget you, let my right hand be forgotten. Add more also, if aught but death part me and thee. And then she says, griddle. And you're like, oh, finally. Yeah. And this is kind of a repeat of what Gideon says to her at the end of the first Which book. is a Bible reference, right? Yeah, this is actually a mashup of two different Bible verses, one from Psalm and one from Ruth. Hmm. Yeah, and it says she dug her hands into the mattress and she cried for Gideon Nav. It all makes sense, I think, in this moment, or at least if we had any other questions, a lot of them are answered right now. This chapter is a major climax for the River Bubble storyline. It is where everything starts to make sense. And the reason that we figure that out is that Abigail and Harrow actually have a little bit of a catch-up. And through this catch-up, we learn what Harrow was actually trying to do with the lobotomy. So up until this point, some of us had no fucking idea what was going on. But others of us maybe had some idea of what was going on, and this kind of either validates some of us or kind of blows it wide open for those of us who had no idea. Right. I do think it was an interesting insight into the fifth house or into just another house in general when Abigail describes her childhood bedroom. It's kind of sweetly banal. It's just this... (laughs) kind of normal childhood bedroom it's not fancy really or you know she's the house heir but it seems pretty modest i feel like it might be modest because they're probably living on a space station sort of thing because they can't actually be living on jupiter i mean you could interpret this as being a modest bedroom but also this might be very luxurious i mean compared to what harrow and gideon grew up in that's true it's like cell like Yeah, but there are nuns. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then even with Palamides and Camilla, they had a little pod thing that was very tiny that they grew up in. Mm, Good point. So even though this bedroom seems like a really basic bedroom, maybe in our universe, I think it is meant to demonstrate how the houses are very different from each other and how the fifth, I think, is described as having a decent amount of wealth. Yeah, I think you're right. That makes sense. But she does explain to Abigail what she did to her brain. She realized that she was going to absorb Gideon's soul, so she cut out the part of her brain that remembered Gideon, that comprehended Gideon, thereby removing her ability to incorporate Gideon. 
and she made her skull a construct, which she programmed to apply pressure to different parts of her brain if she heard, you know, Gideon's name or different stimuli. It's very interesting. Yeah, really creative. And Harrow is like, it worked. And she seems kind of surprised by that and also impressed (laughs) with herself. But we had talked about a few episodes back about whether Harrow was just trying to save Gideon's soul because she suspected there was a way to achieve perfect lictorhood and save Gideon's life. And or if she just wanted to repress Gideon's memory because she was so overtaken by grief. And I think we had talked about how it's probably all of the things. But here, Harrow does say that in the first days that this happened, so after the murder, she knew that Gideon's soul would be absorbed. And Mm -hmm. she had time to actually remove her ability to incorporate her. And so it is this way of like preserving the soul. Maybe Harrow didn't know fully how she was going to figure out how to save Gideon's life, but she knew at the very least Mm -hmm. she was going to preserve Gideon's soul and not have her fully die. Mel, Gideon and Harrow are going to achieve true lictorhood and both be back in the right bodies at some point, right? (laughs) Wow. Wow, what a prediction. I mean, we hope, but I I haven't seen an interview yet where I'm convinced that that's what's going to happen. I feel like we keep getting like, they're going to be around, but not in the way that you think, you know? Hmm. Uh, Tamsin, give us what we want. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible that both of them end up in Gideon's body. Because if Electo has... And and then we'll put a pin in this whole tangent, but if Electo is, in fact, in Harrow's body, we still got a body with nothing in it, which is Gideon's. And that body is lost, but it will be found, and perhaps Harrow and Gideon will be in that one, which I wouldn't be mad about. And Electo's body oh, in the tomb. right. We do have another body. Mel, we got three souls, three bodies. We got three souls and three bodies. <laughs> okay. So Palamides is in Electo's body. Camilla <laughs> dies. Hera is in her body. <laughs> Literally, it could get very confusing. All right. But Abigail basically stops Hera and says, I think that we're misunderstanding each other. I'm talking about the angry spirit that is haunting you. Yeah. And Hera does not know that that is happening to her. So when Abigail tells Harrow that she's haunted, we basically get through this conversation like a greater understanding around what is going on in this river bubble because Harrow is putting it all together with Abigail. And as they're talking through this, Harrow's like, oh my God, I made a bubble in my subconscious, right? She didn't ever intend to do this. It just happened for her. And Abigail explains that she didn't actually remove the memories of Gideon, that she basically, I think she says, you falsified them and you skinned them over with something that looked good. So think about just putting a sticker with a different word on top of a word. It doesn't mean that what's beneath it has gone away. It's just kind of pasted over with something else. And I think... What's cool is that how you and I have been talking about the river bubble, I realize we've been talking about it because it's actually written here. 
But I hadn't even remembered where (laughs) I had come up with the analogy of a play that's happening. But this is where that came from, where essentially Abigail says, Mm -hmm. this is a play that you're directing. You've pulled in all of these different spirits and there's a container, there are rules, and you're the director, except that now this other spirit, which we know to be Wake, is actually trying to take over. And so that's why... Canaan House is crumbling, why there's this crazy weather, and they're reaching a point where Harrow's about to be taken over, and this is go time. Yeah. Oh, I also thought you made an interesting note. They talk about how this tracks with time, and I thought this was really good insight because I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but it is kind of weird that basically it sounds like eight Weeks have passed in the river bubble and 10 months have passed in the real world. And Abigail says that basically time has been dilated and then contracted every time that Harrow sleeps or is unconscious. So that makes sense. Right. I think in general, whenever we read any sort of time travel type thing, usually time tracks differently. And I mean, when you think about it, when you sleep... You're experiencing a whole lot of stuff, and then you wake up, and that time in your dream versus in the actual world is very different. And so that that's basically the same thing that's happening here. I'm interested by this experience that Abigail's describing about how she hasn't experienced any breaks in time. So that's kind of interesting. It's not like the river bubble is operating when Harrow is awake on the Mithraeum, but Abigail isn't experiencing any breaks in time. Right. And this is similar to Palamides bubble where he thinks it's been a much shorter amount of time. Obviously he's not been controlled by another person, right? but still it seems that less time passes right. for the people in the bubble than out. Right. And so after all this conversation, We reach kind of the end of the chapter where Harrow's like, oh, shit, (laughs) I'm actually stuck in this river bubble. And I think she even says she was stabbed through the stomach. Yeah. So she knows that there's been an attempted murder on her life out on the Mithraeum and that she can't just like make her way back there. And so she's like, what do I do? (laughs) And that is essentially she asks, I think, what is happening out there? And that's how the chapter ends, and it launches us right into one of the best chapters. (laughs) Not because anything great happens. It's not like a big chapter where we realize all this stuff, but our fucking favorite character is back. Thank the goddess. Yeah, she certainly is. Unfortunately, she is in a scrawny little necromancer body. (laughs) But she does pretty well with it. The chapter opens with a herald decal. We're back in second person, but also in first person because it is Gideon talking to Harrow, but also referring to herself. Right. It's so cool how this is written. Yes. Gideon wakes up on the Mithraeum in Harrow's body. Harrow's body (laughs) has a sword through the stomach, which is the last moment that Harrow remembers as well. But she's in the bubble. Now Gideon's in her body. Gideon takes the sword, pushes it backwards out of her body, and she immediately heals, which is a thing that 
Harrow could never do. The next couple chapters with Gideon in them, Gideon is just so taken with how Harrow's body just heals right back up. Yeah. She also starts to make a lot of very funny jokes about, well, she's trying not to make jokes about how she's inside of Harrow. (laughs) (laughs) She says, I'm living inside you. If I start now, I'll never stop. So we just have to move on. Oh, my God. It's so funny. (laughs) This is the joke that I've been making basically this whole book. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Both of us. This chapter is is really well written. One, because you get this first person, second person mix. But two, because you're... You can see how Gideon deals with her own grief, and Gideon deals with a lot of it through humor. And so you're getting a mix here of you were gone, you left me behind, and then immediately after you get, I don't care how much of a hot badass I'm meant to be, I was in the wrong body clutching a sword I never used, and you didn't have any muscles, and I absolutely didn't feel well. God damn it, I told you to lift weights. And it's all really funny, but it's also masking this immense amount of emotional pain that Gideon is feeling. Yeah, and she's very upset and hurt and indignant about what she knows Harrow did to keep Gideon forced down inside of her. I do think there's an interesting insight into what it felt like for Gideon to be halfway dead this whole time. Gideon says it was like living in a well, and every time I bobbed to the surface, I kind of got clotheslined back down to the bottom. So she was coming up to the surface and probably experiencing some things more clearly than others. But first of all, what happens at this chapter is that Gideon in Harrow's body sees her first herald, one of the extensions of the resurrection beast, and fights it. And during that whole fight, it's very funny, it's very graphic, but also Gideon is coming to terms with the fact that she's in Harrow's body and coming to terms with the fact that Harrow did this and kind of where it's left her. Yeah. There's a lot of anger, I think, that Gideon's feeling here in these moments, which is probably good because she needs to pull out all the stops to fight these heralds. Yeah, it is super graphic, but at least for me, the more interesting things in this chapter to pay attention to are how she's really coming to terms with being in Harrow's body. And she even says, the main thing I should have said was you sawed open your skull rather than be beholden to someone. You put me in a box, you buried me rather than give up on your own goddamned agenda. And then she says, Harrowhark, I gave you my life and you didn't even want it. Ooh. Yeah, that's brutal. She's obviously really hurt. She tried to make this huge sacrifice and Harrow rejected it. But I do suspect that although a lot of it was Harrow's inability to face her grief and loss, it was also something more. So we'll see if that's true later. We also see Gideon looks at herself in the mirror and it is Harrow's face and Harrow's body, but it's Harrow's face with Gideon's eyes. That's kind of to be expected, but Gideon's now in control and her eyes are the eyes that are showing up, which is kind of the opposite of what usually happens, but I guess this is just a different situation. Right. This is very different than what happened to Pyrrha and Gideon the first. I had a question. I wondered if there was a video game or meme reference and if you could confirm that for me, (laughs) but... Basically, what we're seeing throughout this chapter, that Harrow's body is experiencing 
afflictorhood. She's able to heal. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that Gideon describes it is that an ancient engine had revved to life for me in a way it had never done for you. And so for whatever reason, when Gideon rises to the surface, it kind of like completes something. But Gideon says, this is probably happening because I am a good girl and you are an evil nun. Um, (laughs) And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure evil nun is part of a video game. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, not at all. Horror at school. I don't know. It's like (laughs) evilnungame.com. I don't know. I Googled this and it's really creepy. And I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but it's weird. (laughs) Well, can we ask all of the bone nerds out there to please let us know if there's a video game reference here when she says evil nun? (laughs) It just sounds like it's a reference. I am a good girl and you are an evil nun. Yeah. Either way, it's really freaking funny. It's so funny. This chapter is just really funny all around and really sad at the same time. And once again, it's pretty cool how Tamsin Muir is able to bring us both humor and sadness in the same sentence. Speaking of, there is a very good moment where Gideon is trying to get Harrow to come back to her body by saying really (laughs) embarrassing things. Like, Palamides is so much smarter than me. (laughs) And then she says, oh, Gideon, I was so dumb to think a tub of ancient freezer meat was my girlfriend. Please show me how to do a press-up. Also, I'm very (laughs) obviously attracted to you. (laughs) And then it cuts off. But I'm just saying, Mel... She's trying to say, I'm very obviously attracted to you. Well, obviously, that's what Gideon is trying to say here. But this is coming from Gideon, not from Harrow. Of course, Gideon has it, has the hots for Harrow. We're not arguing Gideon's side of things here. Wow. Okay. I'd like everyone to recognize that Mel has come quite far from episode five or whatever, <laughs> in which they definitely said <laughs> that there was no sexual tension either way (laughs) (laughs) i mean here's the thing i think that gideon does have a thing for harrow okay i'm just not convinced that they are like sexually compatible that it's like a sexual relationship I didn't say that they were compatible. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's attraction. I think that there's deep love. But Harrow and Yanthi's sexual energy seems much higher to me. Uh And I'm not saying that's love because it's not. It's a different kind of relationship and maybe it's a fucked up one. All right. All right. (laughs) All right, y'all. Let's move on from these shenanigans. (laughs) We are... Going to chapter 45, this is has a second house skull, which I find interesting, but I think it's because we end up in Gideon and Pyrrha's chambers. Yeah. It's in the third person. We are back in the river bubble. We get a lot of clarity. There are a lot of revelations here, and there's really beautiful camaraderie between all of these spirits plus Harrow in the bubble. Yeah, and we start with just really awful descriptions of the horrible nasty shit that is taking over Canaan House. It's like little tubes and nasty bubbling fluidy filled sacks and pipettes and 
broken glass and capsules, pills, they're all just like falling out of all this shit. It's nasty. Yeah. I think I had asked you a question. It was a different time in the river bubble where it ended with pipettes falling to the ground and Ortis had asked Harrow if she wanted to ask him if he could see them. Uh And I think I had asked, what is up with the pipettes? And you thought it was because it's wake taking over. And I think that's very much confirmed here. Because once again, pipettes are all over the place. There's broken glass fronted containers filled with dark fluid, mysterious lumps floating suspended within and shattered skeletons. And then lying in the slithering mass of tubes or on mountains of what look to be capsules or pills. I think this is all part of the part of the gear that Wake used to impregnate herself. And the old dolls or whatever that Mercy Morn had put together that died. Yeah, I think that that is pretty likely. The only thing I could think of otherwise is that it's something to do with the research that was happening in Canaan House in the past, but that wouldn't really make sense. And so Abigail leads Harrow through the hall of Canaan House and into a lictoral chamber. And it happens to be Gideon and Pyrrha's room in Canaan House. And it's not falling apart like any other part of Canaan House in the river bubble. Right. And I think that the reason for this is probably because of Wake's relationship with Gideon and Pyrrha. Right. That Wake is basically not messing with her former lover's bedroom <laughs> slash mini lab. <laughs> right. Which is a cute gesture. It is, and very unwake-like, I think. Right. But once Harrow arrives into the chambers, everyone is there. And she finds out that they all could leave on their own if they wanted to, but they chose to stay. Right. And that hits Harrow pretty hard. Um, And she's sort of Mm -hmm. flabbergasted by this. I thought it was interesting that Dias is there with a bunch of guns. Once again, we're seeing many more firearms in this book. They didn't really seem to be a thing at all in the first book. They're sort of collecting weapons for what we imagine would be the final fight against the sleeper. Mm -hmm. And I call this River 401. (laughs) We're used to getting taught about the river from the lictors. But in fact, here, we are understanding through Abigail's lived experience or unlived experience, what's actually happening in the river here and like how it all works. And I think Harrow asks a really good question that's So what is the risk of all of you just being here? And Abigail says, well, spirits can be trapped. And then goes on to describe that the river is full of insane spirits who attempted to cross the river to get to what lies beyond. But they get trapped in the river and can't find their way. And then she starts to describe that You know, Jean-Marie and Isaac should never have been able to have been called back into the river bubble. And she says that they never did anything wrong. And so therefore, they should have traveled lightly through the waters, Mm -hmm. which I found really interesting because it suggests like some sort of measurement of morality that impacts a spirit's ability to move through the river. Right. And it mirrors what... God said when Mercy was giving her little talk, 
where he says, if I believed in sin, I would believe that the ghosts that are closest to the stoma are weighed down with sin. So this is a concept that I feel like is touched on a couple of times. But for right. whatever reason, the closer a ghost gets to the stoma, the worse they were or they have some sort of weight to them. Right, which sort of begs the question of who is defining the morality of this in this universe? Mm -hmm. We don't know. But there is something that is happening here. So Abigail then goes on to say that she doesn't think that the emperor knows anything of what lies beyond the river, which I think God confirmed a while back. And she says that she thinks there's a lot more that of like necromancy that can be tapped into if we actually researched it, but that right now something has gone terribly wrong in the river. And I think this is going to be a really important part of maybe the fourth and final book. Right. But something something is wrong, right? Because Jean-Marie and Isaac shouldn't have been called back. Everyone is kind of going insane in the river and not able to cross it. And so, so what do you do you have an idea of what you think is happening here? Um, I don't know what's gone wrong, but I do wonder if there was a balance between thalurgy and thanergy that God has disrupted and that for some reason is causing this decline in the river. But it's also not entirely clear what exactly has gone wrong. Because right. it also seems that there have been insane ghosts in the river for 10,000 years. So I don't know if it's just gotten worse or what exactly she means here. I think Harrow says it's been thousands of years since anybody bothered to believe in the river beyond. So apparently... In the past, this was not a super niche theory. Uh, some amount of people actually believed that this was a thing, and it's fallen out of fashion or has been repressed by God or the lictors. But I do think, I really do think that this is going to be, that this is foreshadowing and that this is going to be a big plot point in a future book, probably mm -hmm. book four. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, it could be the end of book three. Or the freaking beginning. Who knows? We have no fucking idea. We don't know. But we do know it's going to be mm -hmm. a thing. I think we we can all agree that it's going to be a thing at some point. Yeah, we can all agree, right? Everyone? <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all agree. <laughs> and so after this kind of description of the river gone wrong, Harrow and Ortis connect and... Harrow is avoiding looking over at him, and she finally does. Right, and it's very touching to see them interact. Harrow's sort of facing her fear of, or facing the fact that she's treated Ortis poorly. They have a conversation about why Ortis is staying, and Harrow says that you don't owe me anything, you don't owe me fealty or duty. She says, the way I treated Gibby and Nav defies description, but I treated you in a manner that rejects any claim I had to your loyalty. And he asks her how Gideon died. And there's a really interesting bit in here where it says that even though Gideon had died quite a while before, in her mind, it was only the third day after Gideon died. And it says, it was the morning of the third day in a universe without her cavalier. It was the morning of the third day. And that is definitely a Bible reference to 
Jesus's resurrection, which Gideon definitely has a lot of Jesus similarities, like, you know, son of God, blah, blah, blah. But in the Bible, on the morning of the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. So that's interesting. Yeah. Your note here, grief, 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 sad, sad, sad. (laughs) Yeah. This next part I wrote in our notes, just grief, 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 sad, 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 murder. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, Ortis asks Harrow how Gideon died. And I loved, and this actually changed my life (laughs) when I read this. Like the way that the the way that I think about someone taking their own life. But essentially Harrow says, you know, Gideon died because of murder. Like Gideon was murdered. And she says, I'll spit in the face of the first person who tells me she committed suicide. She was in an impossible situation and she died trying to escape it. She was murdered, but she maneuvered her murder to let me live. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I had referred to Gideon's death in a past episode as suicide, but thinking about suicide in that way kind of blames, places the blame on that person and not the society and world that failed that person. And so I appreciated the reframe here where we're not calling what Gideon did suicide, we're calling it murder because it was... The nine houses, it was Kitharea, you know, it was the situation that God put them in that that made this happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And Gideon did what she felt she had to do. Right. To save, she was trying to save Harrow's life, which makes sense. And this is a really beautiful moment because Ordis says, if there's anything I know about young Gideon, it's that she did everything deliberately. And Harrow is, has a breakdown. And wails and says, she died because I let her, you don't understand. Which is like the child inherent, the like helpless, traumatized child inside Harrow that is just filled with so much grief and sadness and releases all of that through an exclamation. And then Ortis goes over and just hugs her. Yeah, it's described as uh, embrace of a brother which, you know, he is kind of the closest thing she has to a brother. And she finds that she's actually, even though she feels like normally she would be humiliated by this, in this moment, this kind of opens up this infant mechanism within her. And she realizes that actually Ortis is the perfect person to be commiserating with her in this moment because he witnessed it all. Right. And I think in... Kind of describing the feeling of this hug. It says, it was difficult to know what to do with this type of touch. Gideon had touched her in truth. Gideon had floundered towards her in the salt water with that set, unsheathed expression she wore before a fight, her mouth colorless from the cold. Harrow had welcomed her end, but suffered a different death blow altogether. She had become for the second time herself. And I just, it was felt really good to read the pool scene (laughs) even though this is a very shortened version of it from Harrow's perspective because we only got it from Gideon's and it's nice to read this and know that it really meant something to like it meant a lot to Harrow and like we could tell that from their conversation I think throughout this whole book we're not sure fully how Harrow thinks of Gideon 
And then in this this moment, in this chapter, it becomes much clearer. Right. Before she describes how Gideon had touched her, it talks about how when she first saw the body in the tomb, she thought the hand kind of twitched towards her. And that's, first of all, very interesting to hear because I actually think that it probably did. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's interesting because she compares that twitch towards her with Gideon's embrace. And I think it's this is showing character growth here. I think Harrow, through all of this, is slowly coming to realize that although the body in the tomb is something that she loves and is infatuated with these people who are actually here, who she can actually hold and touch, who can touch her in truth are what's really important. And I think that's going to be one of Harrow's greatest points of growth in these books. I don't know for sure. But I do think she's starting to realize how important that actual touch and actual presence is. Totally. Yeah, like what's right in front of you or now what's in you. Right. (laughs) And so another realization after this that Harrow has, because in these chambers, there is a piece of paper and it says one flesh, one end, G and P. And so she knows that P is for Pyrrha, but all this time she's thought that Pyrrha's necromancer's name was Ortis, and she now realizes that actually, what if his name is Gideon because of the description of how she like fucked around with her brain to paste over Gideon with Ortis, it would make this would make sense. So this is a major realization and Mm -hmm. also one that kind of confirms kind of Harrow after all of those AUs coming to terms with Gideon's divinity in that she had thought that maybe Ortis, her caval- her original cavalier, was named for Ortis the Lictor, but instead is now wondering, what if we named Gideon for Gideon the Lictor? And so right. the pieces are starting to come together. They're not fully together yet, but we're moving towards a fuller understanding around who Gideon actually is. Yep. And then she flips the page over and there's another wake note. And it says, the only thing our civilization can ever learn from yours is that when our backs are to the wall and our towers are falling all around us and we are watching ourselves burn, we rarely become heroes. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes. What does that even mean? I think it means that God thinks he's such a hero for taking the world back from the brink of the apocalypse and like creating this other thing. But he also destroyed and created this. We still don't really know what necromancy is, but that makes sense. Like God did not actually become a hero. Certainly not according to Blood of Eden. (laughs) No, I mean, if you create a whole magic system that relies on death, I don't think you could be called a hero. Yeah, and I think also this might be referring to the fact that Wake civilization is kind of it's back against the wall and all of their towers are falling around because of the nine houses. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe Wake is just saying here, like um, admitting that she's not trying to be a hero. She's not trying to like be honorable. She's just trying to freaking destroy. (laughs) Yeah, she she at least owns who she is. Mm hmm. We finish off the chapter with Abigail sharing that the plan is to exercise the sleeper. 
And then we move on to chapter 46. So there's a funny timeline thing that happens here where yes. Abigail shares the plan to exercise the sleeper. And we get this next chapter where Wake shows up in the end. So we could assume that actually they have exercised the sleeper before chapter 46 takes place. Oh, yeah, it could be. All right. Chapter 46, Eighth House Skull, first person on the Mithraeum with Gideon and Harrow's body. Eighth House Skull because we've got a really, <laughs> really unhinged encounter with Mercy Morn. When is it not unhinged, though? <laughs> this is another great chapter. It is. I don't want to get too into like the first bit where basically Gideon is fighting a bunch of heralds. It's a very graphic description of many heroes that she kills she gets her thumb bit off at one point and it just grows back there's not much that we learn there except that Gideon even in Harrow's body is a badass yes and through all that fighting towards the end part of the end of it Gideon goes to like clean up because she's just a mess yeah and she discovers the exoskeleton that Harrow had created for herself to hold all the notes and Gideon actually takes the exoskeleton off. And so now there is no right. more exoskeleton on Harrow's body. Gideon cleans up a little bit. She goes off through the halls of the Mithraeum, and then she first encounters Mercy Morn. Oh, Mel, that means that the notes are gone. We'll never see the notes again. Yeah. Wow, okay. I hadn't really thought about that. Okay. Go on, Mercy Morn. I feel like you should share this encounter because you have the reference to Lemon Mouth Prime. <laughs> yeah, so Gideon says, I ran into Lemon Mouth Prime, the lictor you call Mercy Morn. And I think I said this last episode that I think that that is maybe a lemon grab reference. I think I think this because I think at some point Tamsin Muir actually said Mercy Morn was based on Lemon Grab anyway. I read this as lemon grab prime, <laughs> even though it's lemon mouth. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I I just it's like a clash of world. You know, when you like bring two friends together who have never met. So like they're in different circles and then yes. you throw a party and like worlds collide. Oh, yeah. That is how this feels to me when I'm reading it. I'm like, <laughs> even though technically Gideon's been inside Harrow this whole time, so she's like sort of encountered Mercy Morn in a weird muted way. But mm -hmm. this is the first time that Gideon is interacting with Mercy Morn, and it's fucking great. We learn so much, and Mercy mm -hmm. Morn continues to be a horribly delightful character. But essentially, when Mercy Morn sees Gideon, she is afraid. She stares at Gideon's face. She's, I think Gideon describes her as being shocked by misery. And it wasn't just fear. It was this like huge grief-stricken panic, a welter of unhappy terror. It was the face of someone who had just seen their one true love drop kicked into a meat grinder and come out the other end as a pile of <laughs> sausages. <laughs> I just love how Tamsin Muir describes panic and fear and horror in these books. It's so good. Yes. And what Mercy Morn says to Gideon is, so now you come to me first, which, if you'll remember, God had told Harrow during one of their conversations that he referred to A.L. as first. And so here, Mercy Morn is saying, so now you come to me first at the end of everything. And so what's right. happening here is that Mercy Morn thinks that Gideon is Electo. 
because of the eyes. Yes. Which when we read it the first time, we probably wouldn't piece together. But after reading it a second time, this all kind of makes sense. You got to read this book twice. It's meant to be read multiple times. So shortly after she says this, she then changes her tune and she says, wait a minute, you're not first. If you were, I think she says that freak would have gone for me already. <laughs> she never could act human. Right. And then and then Mercy reveals that she was the one who tried to kill Harrow. Right. What? Mercy Morton's basically going on a descriptive monologue that's answering <laughs> quite a few of our questions very quickly. <laughs> right. And so I'm going to go through some of this monologue. Then we're going to pause. I'm going to ask some questions and then we'll keep going because there's a lot to parse out in the monologue. Mercy essentially admits that she tried to kill Harrow. She's the one who stabbed Harrow through the stomach. And Gideon's like, are you telling me you stabbed my necromancer? And Mercy's like, yeah, and you should have thanked me for it. And she even says, I dulled her nerves out of a misplaced sense of affection. (laughs) And basically like put her out in the corridor so that she'd be eaten quickly. Why... Why does Mercy kill Harrow? I don't get this. Um, I feel like it could have been either that she thought that Harrow would be a liability in the river and would like distract them with her death in some way. But I also wonder if God told Mercy to kill her. Oh. I'm not really sure, but it wouldn't be out of character for God to do that. Right. And there was a moment, I think, after the soup showdown where God held Mercy Morn back and like had a chat with her because she had missed seeing how powerful Harrow was. But the weird thing is that we're assuming that God instructed Gideon the first to kill Harrow to try and get Harrow to achieve lichterhood. But here it seems like Mercy just killed her and left her out to actually die. And so it is it's curious. Maybe Mercy felt that Harrow would have been a threat to Mercy's plan to kill God. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, I'm not sure. I don't or know. maybe it was some sort of like she just not that she didn't want Harrow to suffer, but just that she thought it would be easier to do this. I don't think she has much of a conscience or like right. you know, whatever. Not sure. Maybe we'll have it answered but later. In any case, after this confession, Mercy Morn then says to Gideon in Harrow's body, but you're the soul of the cavalier that she stuffed in the back of her brain. And she asks, what happened to your eyes? And so this kind of confirms for us that when Mercy, remember when Mercy like tapped Harrow's head three times and said, Ortis, Ortis, Ortis? Yes. It confirms for us that she maybe had some idea of what Harrow had done when she said, you're either crazy or you're a genius or both. Right. And so she very quickly like realizes who Gideon actually is in Harrow's body. Right. So I think it is in this moment she realizes that Gideon is the child of Wake. This is like part three of Mercy Morn's monologue. So the first part is yeah. that she thinks Gideon is Electo. The second part right. is that Mercy realizes that Gideon is Gideon. And the f- and or is Gideon Harrow's cavalier. And the third part is Mercy Morn realizing that Gideon 
is actually the child of God and wake. And she comes to this through kind of like verbal processing out loud. So we get to see it, (laughs) see this play out. And she basically says, you aren't her. So her meaning electo, but you have her eyes, right? So when Mercy Morn knew electo, electo had golden eyes. And so she thinks, Mm -hmm. right, that these golden eyes are electos. And she's saying, but you have electos eyes. Why? And then she says, when they showed me your corpse, and then they is referring to Blood of Eden. So when Mercy Morn had a visit with Blood of Eden, they showed Mercy Morn Gideon's corpse, but she didn't check the eyes. And so Gideon's kind of like, what are you talking about? Because also as the reader, (laughs) we're like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, And Mercy Morn is saying, I'm talking about the failure of the Ninth House operation, which, as we now know, was Mercy Morn, Augustine, and Wake's attempt to break open the tomb with a Mm -hmm. blood child of God, because they learned through, I think, Cassiopeia that the blood of God's of a child of someone who created a blood ward would be able to bypass it. And so that was their plan but mercy morn is just like very confused by these golden eyes they're really unique and so she's she says here and she reveals some things again we have no idea what she's talking about she says i made her the dolls her meaning wake they were perfect and she must have played silly buggers with the emission of course it killed her she was always arrogant I'm pretty sure that silly buggers with the emission is that Wake messed around with God's sperm and basically like put the sperm in herself to create a child because the dolls, the children that Mercy Morn had created had died. And so Wake was like, I still need a blood child. The only way for me to do this is to impregnate myself with God's sperm. Right. So that's what this nonsensical part of the monologue is is going through. It's basically Mercy Morn trying to piece together what the fuck Wake did with God's sperm <laughs> and how it right. made Gideon. And so what Mercy Morn realizes, she says, I see, I understand. She says lipochrome, recessive. So lipochrome just means yellow tint that um, is in like yellow eyes. Recessive, meaning it's not like dominant gene. And so she says, you are the evidence. And she says, he lied to us, which is interesting because if we remember from the first book, Kitharea had written, you lied to us on a wall. Right. So she knew. So she knew. And this and Mercy Morn is coming to the same conclusion here. And she even says, Kitharea would have known as soon as she looked at you. Mm-hmm. So. We don't have all the answers here. And at this point in the first read through, we don't know what the yellow eyes mean. We don't know anything. I think in the next episode or the episode after when Mercy Morn confronts God, we can talk through the significance of Gideon's yellow eyes. But all there is to know now is that Mercy Morn has pieced together that Wake and God made a baby and that baby is Gideon, who's Harrow's cavalier. Right. And she's also pieced together that Electo is God's cavalier. Right. But we have no idea about that yet. 
right, right, right. That's what half of this means. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason why Mercy Morn is in a tizzy about this and that and is saying that God lied to us is that God has made everyone, all of these lictors believe that they've had to murder their cavaliers in order to achieve lictorhood. And what has happened here is that perfect lictorhood means that both people get to live, but your eyes switch. <laughs> and so what Mercy Morn is realizing is that these golden eyes are actually God's original eyes. And what she realizes in this moment is that when she met Electo, Electo and God had already achieved this lictoral process and that their eyes had switched. And the reason she knows this is because it's God's genetic code that is in Gideon. And so if his own eyes were really these black eyes, Gideon would not have yellow eyes. Right. But in fact, God's actual eyes are yellow, and that is still in his genetic code, and he passed it on to Gideon. Right. So apparently this isn't enough to want Mercy to keep Gideon alive because she says, <laughs> okay, well, I've got proof. Uh, now I have to kill you and goes for Gideon, kind of immediately stabs her through the heart, but hasn't realized that Gideon can now heal or Harrow's body can now heal. And so she immediately heals when she gets stabbed through the heart. And Mercy's like, well, that's fine. You know, you've learned a trick, but I'll still destroy you. And she catches Gideon in Hera's body in her net, which is her offhand. Her offhand is a net, which is so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but right before she stabs Gideon right through the head, like up through the jaw, I think, she gets shot in the chest by Kitherea, <laughs> <laughs> who is standing in the doorway holding a smoking gun. And what's interesting is that Mercy Morn doesn't scream in normal, like you just got shot through the heart way she screams and the way that she was screaming when she was fighting the heralds. So what I take from this is that these bullets are the herald bullets that we talked about earlier in the book. And I'm really not sure how or why Gideon or Pyrrha or whatever Kitherea had them or how they got into the hands of Wake inside Kitherea. But I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on here. So Mercy Morn is writhing on the ground <laughs> Gideon looks up, sees Kitherea in the doorway, doesn't really know what to do, and <laughs> Kitherea just says, goodbye, <laughs> in a voice that's totally not Kitherea, and then walks away. And in a mirror to Harrow's earlier in the section, Harrow saying, what the fuck is going on? Gideon now says, you know, just stands there, Mercy Morn shrieking next to her, and just says, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, I love Gideon's description around why she didn't run after Kitherea. Oh, because yeah. this person just blew Mercy Morn through with an ancient gun or whatever. And like it's just like been a total shit show. Like, wouldn't you run after Kitherea? But Gideon's like, it's complicated. Sometimes a cute older girl shows you a lot of attention because she's bored or whatever. And you sort of have this maybe flirty, maybe not thing going on. And then it turns out she's an ancient warrior who's killed all your friends and she's coming for you. And then you both die and she turns up ages later in the broiling heat on a sacred space station. And like, it's complicated. Gideon <laughs> doesn't, doesn't even know how much more complicated it is. 
I know. (laughs) She doesn't even know that's her mother. It's interesting because so much of this book is about Harrow, but it turns out that it's all about Gideon also. It's obviously about Harrow grieving Gideon, but the plot is about Gideon. And when you read through this, there's Gideon all over this book. And it's funny because when you first read it, for me, I was so bummed out, like, oh, Gideon. But this book is is all Gideon. I absolutely agree. Or at least she's kind of the main, <laughs> the linchpin. She's the linchpin, yes. the plot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, more on that next time. Thanks so much for joining us. If you liked listening, please rate and review us. If you have questions or comments or want to point something out that we missed, send us a question on our website, locktoompod.com or on Twitter at locktoompod. We release episodes on Tuesdays wherever you find podcasts. Thanks as always to Olivia Kay for our theme music. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. And we'll see you next time here at the Locktoon Podcast.